charging to start a couple minutes later than normal, just so you know. Mary Calder will be here shortly. And the University of Notre Dame. And we are partners also with the Conflict Prevention and Resolution Forum, the CPRF, which this morning is a part of. So every second um, Tuesday of the month, we have a forum like this. This morning, we are looking at the concept of human security as operationalized by different institutions and organizations. Um, so we have a United Nations perspective, a European Union perspective, um, a U.S. military perspective, and uh, from global civil society. We have four wonderful speakers this morning. Ambassador Takasu is the Special Advisor on Human Security to the United Nations Secretary General. And if you look at your program, you can read the extensive history and advocacy that he has done on behalf of the concept of human security, both at the United Nations and in its own country of Japan. We have Mary Caldor, who is the director of the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit at the London School of Economics. And Mary also has a very long track record of working on behalf of human security, writing books um, that many of you probably know and have read. Sean McFate is an assistant professor at the Department of International Security Studies at the National Defense University, where he teaches a course on human security. And I've known Sean for years and saw him make a presentation on human security earlier this year, um, and particularly with a focus on Liberia. William Tsuma is the program manager of the Preventive Action and Human Security at the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict, or GPAC. And GPAC is also a close partner with 3P Human Security, um, and we work closely together with global civil society networks. So this morning we will hear from each of the panelists and then we will open it up for questions and conversation with all of you. I want to remind you to turn your cell phones off, please. I also want to let you know that this forum is recorded. There's cameras up there and uh, the video from this will be posted online. Uh, so you should be aware of that. I will turn now to Ambassador Takasu to begin. And no, you can you. please Thank take you. the podium. And um, we have several panelists who have PowerPoints that they will be using. How to put it on? Uh, on screen. Who knows how to turn the PowerPoint on? Uh, John? Switch on. Um, I think you're the closest. Where did our size technology? <laughs> okay. Good. Seems like uh, thank you very much, this for kind uh, introduction. My name is Yukio Takasu. Uh, I'm delighted to be here to discuss about human security. Uh, at this moment, I'm representing uh, UN Secretary General as a special advisor uh, to promote concept uh, globally, uh, particularly in context of UN. As a matter of fact, yesterday we had a meeting of a member state to discuss about this issue on the basis of uh, uh, most recent report of Secretary General on Human Security, which came out just last week. 
And this is going to be very exciting uh, here uh, in UN General Assembly uh, because on the basis of that report, member state is going to uh, consult and negotiate, hopefully, and uh, finally, uh, this summer, I hope, to have uh, understanding or agreement, political agreement, among member states in UN on human security. This is very important. But at the same time, I must tell you that um, personally, I have been involved in human security from the very beginning of Japanese initiative as a representative of Japan uh, in the 1990s at the time of the Asian financial crisis. Since then, obviously, my capacity has changed, uh, has been consistently promoting this concept globally, uh, mainly in the area of conflict-involved uh, countries in conflict situation or post-conflict, and also country in poverty and others, and health, global health issues application of human security in all these issues. But uh, since uh, one and a half years ago, I returned to, to Japan um, and realized that this concept is uh, very pertinent to a country like Japan. That was before 3.11. But after 3.11, I was convinced that this concept is very important pertinent to the country because country like Japan, which has been reasonably advanced and reasonably well prepared for natural disaster, but suddenly, cannot cope with so sudden you know, situation, because not an earthquake, but a tsunami, as also a nuclear accident. And I must tell you that uh, terrible situation that uh, government was unable to provide the basic need of those people have been escaping from tsunami disasters. And I formed uh, personally uh, a new NPO, NGO in Japan, Human Security Forum, to provide a human security approach and help to the victims of all these natural disasters. And it's not only Japan. Australia had a problem, the European countries has a financial problem, and even this country has uh, many economic problems. And this human security approach I'm going to describe is going to be very useful. So I think I just want to point to that one. And this morning, because of the time, I concentrate more on the UN area so that other speakers can speak more on that one. I think uh, some of you are familiar with human security, but not others. There are three, I think, uh, standard criteria uh, to talk about human security. First one is value, because I think it's very confusing without understanding what you're talking about. Human security has a value to be shared by all. And human security as an approach to how to call this lenses, perspective, look at the global issues. The third one is how to call the approach to be taken to address threat and risks. And sometimes interchangeably, uh, the human security is used. What are the values to be shared by all? This is based on the very liberal concept that irrespective of nationality, irrespective of where you are, in the background, and economic and social, every individual is entitled to live to the fullest extent possible to fulfill their potentials. So therefore, this is not only the monopoly of other countries. Wherever you are born as a human being, they are entitled to have life, means survival, from conflicts, violence, disasters, other things, and also livelihood education, food, water, and other things. These are called freedom from fear, freedom from want. But I think the importance of human security value is a third one, dignity. Life and livelihood should be you know, shared by all, but it's not yet. You are not living as humane, human way. That is based, not only human right, I think this is also important, much broader than human right. It's basically respect, pride of being yourself as a human being. You may be poor, you may be, you know, not, uh, how to call this endowed with ability and other compares. You may be tall, big, small, and other things. But this doesn't make any difference. Every individual has a light and value to live. And this is identity, 
And this respect means shared by others, not pride of yourself, but you must respect the pride of others. And this is, I think, uh, the element of human security that I emphasize. I mentioned about uh, victims of tsunami in Japan. They are given the shelters when they escaped from tsunami and other things, but they didn't have dignity. They were not given this. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, this is very familiar, the key driving forces human security. As I told you, Japanese initiative of human security initiated in 1998. UNDP report came in 1994, but not much attention since then. And the Canadian Initiative of Human Security and Humanitarian Intervention, RTP eventually it emerged, came in 1999. So therefore, just 12, 13 years ago. But this is uh, you know, increasingly uh, raising, I mean, raising, uh, raising uh, tensions and other things globally, uh, reflecting, I think, uh, intensification, globalization, a new type of conflicts. I think Mary Cardo is going to be explaining about this. And also tide of democratization. I think some people are talking about awakening Arabs and others. States and leaders are much more increasingly accountable to what they are doing for the benefit of the people, even in the very dictatorial system. Uh, so as a result of this, uh, you know, these driving forces, I think we are living in a new security paradigm, meaning security agenda must be broadened beyond traditional military and uh, dipl diplomatic uh, uh, way, but cross-border and multidimensional issues. Uh, for example, for the United States, uh, took issue of HIV-AIDS which is killing more than the war in 2010 Security Council as agenda. So it's a very, I think, uh, historical moment. And climate change and conflicts, um, not, not conflict, of course, climate change, and of course, inclusive development and other things are considered to be a security threat. Um, so therefore, uh, that's the second point, is that security is no longer addressed only at national level, aggregate level. Prosperity cannot be gauged by national economic growth, aggregate level, you have to go focus. Include, I mean, individual level and community level, in the security and the protection of a country too. You cannot, of course, uh, protect the people without national proper national defense. But national defense is not enough. You really have to have security difference as individual. It means it must be addressed also, also is important at individual level, uh, in addition to national level. So as a result of this, state has very important role, of course, but no longer provide a sufficient protection against imminent threat. Non-state actors play essential roles uh, in NGO and the private corporations and others. Um, so in the UN, uh, I think the important uh, development is 2005. Uh, the World Summit Outcome Document has accepted uh, human security first time globally, uh, but it's a very uh, rudimentary element or freedom, fear, freedom, want, and other things. But at the same time, this 2005 World Summit Outcome document accepted so-called responsibility to protect. Uh, probably we're going to talk about later on, a little bit more uncomfortably. But it's a different version from Canadian Commission that I can't emphasize. Um, and since then, General Assembly has organized series of debates or uh, consultations, 2008, 2010, 2011. And the report of Secretary General, first one on human security out uh, two years ago. And then the resolution was in the General Assembly was adopted, uh, 2010 July, in which a member state requested Secretary General to come up with a report uh, formulating a recommendation about uh, what do you understand? What is by human security? Either definition or common understanding. I, I'm using just 
and also area where this, the concept of human security can be relevant, useful in activities of UN, there too. And the response to this uh, decision by GA, uh, Secretary, uh, Secretary General has submitted a report last week and uh, I drafted with the help of uh, Milnes and others. Uh, and yesterday we had an informal briefing and the beginning of June in General Assembly there is a formal debate and hopefully uh, there will be a resolution adopted uh, before summer. That's the uh, General Assembly uh, track. And uh, there is another one is UN Trust Fund of Human Security since 1999. Uh, it's a Japanese initiative uh, uh, which came, uh, as I say, 1998. But that time I was involved in this creation of the fund. Thought that in order to promote this kind of concept, it's better not just talk about abstract. What do you mean by human security? How it will change at added value? So that to finance a program to be carried out, international program, uh, extra budgetary resources we call, Trust Fund of Human Security was created. Since then, uh, it has been supporting uh, more than 200 projects in 70 countries. And to support this uh, Trust Fund of Human Security unit, small unit, which was created. You can see three components, uh, freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom to live in dignity. These are, uh, the, I think, uh, generally accepted. Uh, I think the uh, important, uh, importance of the human security approach is interlinkage, integrated response, because root causes of uh, insecurity, either conflicts, either poverty and other things, are interrelated. And uh, the, take example of, for instance, uh, health security, uh, meaning that you have to be free from diseases. That's health security. But human security, health and human security is different. Health and human security means that it's not only enough that you are not sick, you are, not, you are cured from disease. It's only first step. In order to be health, you need clean water, nutrition, basic education, toilet. They don't go toilet, but then anyway, urine part, part should be separated from cooking area, for instance, you know, all kinds of things. Um, in other words, more integrated, Comprehensive approach is necessary. That's called health and human security, for instance. Um, interrelated accepts. Accept. And then I mentioned about uh, human security value. I said uh, human security approach, uh, uh, sorry, perspective, to look at always individual approach and not only national aggregate level, but approach, meaning people-centered, whatever you address, global issues and others, comprehensive way, context-specific means that uh, threat insecurity also vary between the country and among countries, but within country, within community, within even a family. And also it changes in time also. It's not constant. So you really have to focus what and when you are talking about. And that's what we're talking about context specific and uh, prevention oriented. Uh, this is the difference from RTP. And particularly empowerment part is emphasized in human security approach. Uh, one word, uh, we're going to talk about, I think, the discussion part, human security and RTP. In the broad sense, academia and then outside the UN, uh, these are the, basically human security include RTP. Uh, uh, you know, it's very, very clear, you know, and I think Mary Caldo talk about it. But I tell you, in UN context, in UN context I'm talking about, it is separated. In 2005, an outcome, something I mentioned, 
They agreed, member states agreed on RTP, I'm sorry, security, inhuman security, as a concept that I have been describing. And RTP also variation, uh, devised from Canadian initiative. But anyway, it's a separate concept. And that has been developed since then. In other words, RTP, as agreed by UN, is confined to four most serious human right violations. Not just uh, natural disasters or some human humanitarian violations, whatever. Very clearly, genocide, as defined by convention, war crimes also, ethnic cleansing, and crime against humanity. That leaves, of course, room for interpretation. But anyway, four crimes are corresponding to crimes subject to ICC. These are P, and the use of force is regulated in accordance with UN Charter. This was modified. Some of us didn't like it because of Kosovo, because of Rwanda. You know, but that is the reality of the political situation at this moment, that member states are not prepared to accept the unilateral use of force in the name of R2P without authorization of Security Council. So of course, question is that, you know, in Libya, it happens. But how about Syria? What happens? Then it's useless. I think we're going to talk about it later on. But human security is distinct in the context of UN in a sense that human security is focusing on widespread cross-cutting threat to people's survival, livelihood, dignity. So therefore, uh, no use of force when I'm talking about it. Um, okay. Um, what are happening in UN is that there is a broad convergence of views among member states about human security after more than 10 years. Only a small handful of member states are causing problem to this concept. They are afraid of so-called interference of domestic matters, um, or they call misuse of the concept for different purposes. And suddenly when you awake in the morning, somebody is knocking your door in the name of human security. They don't like that. They won't sleep quietly at night. Um, so those people are arguing there is no definition agreed by UN General Assembly. Therefore, you shouldn't use human security word in any official UN document. Without definition, how on earth you can use it? Okay? This is extreme position. Okay. To challenge this, I have been doing this as a special advisor. Okay? There's no point of negotiating legal definition. We're not creating new legal order here. Even R2P, you didn't create a new legal order, <laughs> you may know. Human security is a basically operational policy framework, mobilizing not only international organizations, member states, but also enterprise, private sectors, NGO, and, and all this. So therefore, there's no room. I mean, this. and you can tell you, uh, I can tell you in UN, once you start negotiation, legal definition of anything, very difficult to achieve. Some of you may be familiar, for instance, sustainable development. There is no legal definition agreed. Terrorism, there is no legal definition accepted. Rule of law, no legal definition accepted. But people understand something what you mean. At least they agree counter terrorism. <laughs> then they agree <laughs> without agreeing terrorism, <laughs> you know. So, what I'm proposing, I have proposed to member state in the report, is forget about definition. No, don't say forget. No. <laughs> don't do this definition. Common understanding agreed by member states. What do you mean by this human security doesn't mean 
as I say, knocking the door in the morning. Suddenly, <laughs> we're talking about that. Um, so there I have uh, dozens of elements uh, we have proposed. I don't have time to do this, perhaps, so I go very quickly. Uh, I mentioned already three elements, survival, livelihood, dignity, uh, and uh, underscore universality, and also third one, the interlinkage, um, and uh, interlink, uh, three pillars of UN system means human right development and uh, security, and uh, uh, human security is implemented. This is important for some member states. Full respect of UN Charter, including sovereignty of state, territorial integrity, and non-interference in matters which are essentially within domestic jurisdiction of state. This is what the Charter says. Uh, and it is distinct from responsibility to protect its implementation. And government retain primary law. But when government cannot do it, international community must do that. Okay, and then also human rights, I mean, the political, economic, sorry, political and civil rights is important, but also economic and social cultural rights is important. Uh, let's see. Uh, and also, I mentioned about human center, the comprehensive, so and so. Okay, good. Um, so, you know, the, how this concept ha has not been, I mean, applicable already, applied, anyway, in conflict situation. I think you have a copy of my presentation later on. I will not go, all those things. Already, uh, in terms of helping uh, IDP, in terms of helping children in conflict, uh, this human security approach has been used. And also, in conflict situation, extremely important uh, to how to deal with non-state actors. Because many times, the government is sensitive for international organization to address or uh, you know, deal with directly non-state actors. Because uh, it's delegitimate government. So, but human security approach is really essential. That you, unless you talk to and negotiate directly non-state actors, there's no point of calling government respect humanitarian law and human rights law. We're talking about non-state actors who have to. Um, so therefore, the legal approach is not enough. You have to go to this. Okay, and the peace building area also very rich area of applicability of human security approach to peace building. Uh, I have been chairing of peace building commission too, and then going to Liberia and many places. So the, what I can say, a couple of things is, human security approach advocate integrated approach. Traditionally, peace builders have been focusing on security sector reform, rule of law, or those areas, governance. These are extremely important, of course. But, uh, but I have been approaching uh, to this issue and advocating and then gradually accepting the UN is that integrated approach and economic and social stability, economic and other benefit after the conflict, like Sierra Leone, uh, many places we have applied this one. And it has been gradually accepted now. Initially, it was a very difficult. Yes. And also, the when peace building start. Traditional concept was so-called continuum. Uh, conflict is over, peacekeepers gone, and then peace building. This is wrong completely. Peace building process start immediately, day one, overlapping with peacekeepers. Again, in Liberia, it was difficult, I tell you that I tried to persuade Russia and China was totally against it originally. Peace building start only peacekeepers go in like many cases. Traditionally, no, that is wrong. Now it's accepted, but uh, it's only first case, you know, in Liberia. But anyway, I think we want to talk about Liberia later, so. Um, and also in UN, what we're talking about, civilian capacity gap. This is a major shortfall in peace building because we need 
civilian expertise yeah, and like peacekeeping operations and how to secure demands and uh, supply. Uh, this is a major uh, shortcoming and uh, in UN we are addressing this. And uh, we called cap match or national response to match demand and there are many things we're doing. But anyway, going. Um, I think we skip over and then make, may I conclude that uh, there is a convergence of views in UN about uh, value, scope and approach. And I really hope that uh, this summer uh, there will be political agreement. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you very much. Mary, you're welcome to either stay here or yeah, go up there. Okay. All right, thanks. Actually, I thought I would start by telling you about how I was invited to take part in an army exercise last October called Urban Warrior. And it took place in Southampton, in the south of England. And the scenario was that uh, in Britain was divided into several countries, and Southampton was the capital of the Southwest Protectorate, as it was called. And Southampton was predominantly Anglican, but it had a Muslim minority. And the country to the north was Muslim. And the scenario was the country to the north had invaded Southampton ostensibly to protect the Muslim minority, but really because Southampton had oil. And the task that was given, actually it was a NATO operation, it was Britain and its NATO partners, the Prime Minister of the Southwest Protectorate had invited NATO in to solve the problem. So that was the army exercise, and we stood in the middle of Southampton in a multi-story car park, looking at the block of flats opposite, which had been occupied by the Muslim invaders, and solemnly discussed how we were going to take the block of flats. So I kept saying, actually, would we really do that <laughs> if an outside force invaded Southampton? Would we actually try to expel them nowadays by force? Wouldn't that kill an awful lot of civilians? Wouldn't we, by the way, Southampton was also rife with crime and there was a Muslim paramilitary group and an Anglican paramilitary group. And uh, so, I, so I said, wouldn't we sort of try to restore order in Southampton and win hearts and minds and try to get rid of the Muslim invaders through political pressures? So we had a discussion about this and the army officer said, well, actually, of course, that is what we would do, but war fighting is our core business and we have to practice it. And I think that's a very important point, really, because I think what's happening at the moment, and this makes me very worried, is that in the financial crisis, with the cuts in military spending, militaries all over the world, but especially in the United States, Britain, France, are hunkering down around their core business. And the developments which a few years ago seemed to be happening, which was developing capacities for dealing with violent situations in other parts of the world, are being cut. And so our capacity to do what I would call human security, and we'll come to that in a minute, 
is actually getting weaker instead of stronger. And this, to me, is very worrying. Um, I think we desperately need uh, a um, shift in, security, in, in the security paradigm. I think we're actually living through both an economic and a security crisis. And by a security crisis, I mean the rise of uh, the growth of terrorism, violence, the uh, spread of conflict in Syria, for instance, or in Libya. And we absolutely do not know what to do. And it's interlinked with the economic crisis. And without change, and, and I think it's also interlinked with a deep distrust of the political class. We believe in our political authorities because we believe they keep us safe. And we no longer really believe that our governments have the capacity to keep us safe. And I think that's deeply, deeply worrying. And what you're seeing is a widespread loss of trust in government everywhere. And I think the reason why we can't do it is because we are caught up in the institutional structures of the 20th century and this belief in fighting being our core business is part of that. So let me say a little bit about how I see human security and maybe at the end I'll say where I think I disagree with Ambassador Taksu. But for me, the term human security very much arose not out of the development world. I mean, I, I think UNDP's definition emerged after the end of the Cold War with the thinking, quite rightly, that the end of the Cold War would mean reductions in military spending and they should be devoted to development and other things which would make, actually make people more secure. And, and of course, no one can disagree with that. But for me, it very much came out of the feeling that we don't have a doctrine for dealing with really violent situations. And that doesn't mean I don't agree about the interrelate. I, I mean, I, of course, those violent situations do have to do with underdevelopment, natural disasters, uh, loss of human dignity, and you have to deal with all those things. But I still think it's quite important to maintain a core focus on how do we dampen down violence in these difficult situations. Because that's what people normally mean. You know, when you use the word security, people think about that. And it sort of is quite a stretch to extend it to a whole lot of other things. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean responsibility to protect. Responsibility to protect may be part of it. But I really mean how do you deal with everyday violence of a horrific kind that people are facing in places like Syria, the Congo. And although there's a lot of optimism now, partly as a result of the Human Security Report, that war is declining, I think it's what I call old war, 20th century war that's declining. And we don't actually have numbers about this sort of low-level political criminal violence that we're seeing in large parts of the world and we don't know how to deal with and which I think will get very much worse if the economic crisis worsens. So actually what I'm giving you is a sort of pessimistic rant rather than an optimistic story about what we do. But let me say that I was, you know, I, was, I ran a study group for Javier Solano and we worked a lot on the Europe, European security and defense policy and, we, and how to design it for this kind of purpose. And two years, and, and I've written a lot thinking about how do you design security forces. And two year, three years ago, coming to this city, 
I remember feeling rather optimistic because there was a huge debate going on in the Pentagon uh, as a result of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I really thought, you know, the Pentagon was having its perestroika, I felt, that there was going to be finally a restructuring of the military and ch a change of direction in Iraq and Afghanistan would actually show people that it could be done and the US was the only country with the capacity to do it. And for a while, that optimism was upheld with the experience in Baghdad. I mean, I think what General Petraeus did in Baghdad by placing local security stations all over Baghdad didn't end the, the civil war. The civil war ended because of changes on the Sunni side and the Shiite side, but it facilitated it. I think in the end, what, what, what they did in Baghdad was to put security forces in local areas and they did literally hundreds of local deals, literally hundreds of sort of a bottom-up process of reinstating uh, security in Baghdad. And, and I thought this was a real example. I mean, it had lots of imperfections, and we could discuss those imperfections. But it showed they were learning something. But since then, things have gone in a completely opposite direction. If you read the strategy that was developed by McChrystal for the surge, it was wonderful, actually. It, was, it, it used the word human security. It talked about protecting people, doing state building and governance building at a local level, trying to reach local agreements, having the role of soldiers together with civilians being about protecting people. But in fact, um, exactly the opposite happened. What happened is that the entire focus, I think, and maybe Sean will disagree with me, of the American effort has been on killing or capture of Taliban, now known as Al-Qaeda affiliates. And that has not actually resulted in more security. It's resulted in much less because actually you can't deal with terrorism through kill and capture. It just recruits more and more radicalized, younger and radicalized um, terrorists. It actually makes the situation much, much worse. And the situation in Afghanistan, Yemen, where I think the drone attacks do the same thing. And however much NATO and the West insist, well, we're really learning how to be precise, we only kill the terrorists, we don't kill civilians. What they miss is, even if it's true, and it's not completely true, um, NATO is still killing quite a lot of civilians. But even if it were true, it doesn't make any difference because it provokes radicalization and it provokes more fighting. And that's what's not understood until we have a profound shift of man mindset from defeating enemies to, um, uh, to stabilization, protecting people, creating human security. Uh, we're just going to make violence steadily worse. And, and that's what's desperately needed at the moment. You know, I, th I, just, I think you see the same problems in Libya and Syria. I mean, I was very much in favor of people of doing something to protect, the, to protect the rebels. And at that time, they weren't rebels. They were de peaceful demonstrators in Benghazi. But the only means that we had was airstrikes. And actually, with airstrikes, there's a 
limit how much you can do to protect people on the ground. And in the end, what happened was that NATO sided with the rebels. Uh, and luckily, the rebels won. So we might say this was better than doing nothing. Um, I'm, you know, the jury is out on this, I think, because I think it depends what happens. But I think the danger of violent overthrow, which is what it is, is that it empowers the people with the guns, who are often not the people who should be ruling the peace. And I think that's what's happened in Libya. In Syria, we are completely helpless. We don't know what to do in Syria. And part of the reason, I think, is that we haven't really thought through um, we don't have the right, we have purely military capabilities that think in terms of war. So we see the only alternative to war is between war and negotiating with a dictatorship. And neither of those options can actually protect people on the ground. So, you know, I just wanted to say to end two things. First, I thought I would add, so where do I part company with Ambassador Taksu, although we're both got the same goals in mind. <laughs> We're in, on the same page, but I do have some differences. One is, and it's something we did too in the European Union, we said, oh, human security is not an add-on to national defense. Actually, as long as we keep thinking in national terms about defending ourselves against our enemies, we can actually never solve the problems of human security. And this is both economic and financial, in that the resources all go national defense is extremely expensive, but it's also psychological. You know, to do human security, you really have to believe that human, Afghans are human beings. And I'm sure if you asked every member of the American military are Afghans human beings, they'd say yes. But they definitely think the value of an Afghan life is less than the value of an American life. And we would not dream, I mean, would we do drones? If there was a terrorist in the middle of Washington, D.C., would we do a drone attack? I'm, I'm sure we wouldn't. I'm sure we'd think, no, we can't possibly do that because it might create more terrorists or it might kill American citizens. So we have a really different mentality. So I think the mentality is actually almost more important than the economic and structural things. But I think economic and structural things are very important and actually... You know, I, I find when I come to this country, if you walk through Pentagon City or Crystal City, you feel, how can we ever change all this? So I think two years ago, I was much more optimistic that the military could change. And I think what went wrong in Afghanistan was that it was military-led. And actually, it's very, very difficult for the military to change, even though there are some far-sighted generals and some far-sighted soldiers. The whole ethos of the military is such. And I think you need a very different type of... You know, even though I think human security capabilities would have to involve military skills, I think you would need very sophisticated, different type of person to be able to do that. And a few senior generals are those types of people. But it's very difficult for them to create that culture among ordinary soldiers. So that's one area... I think the second area is on non-state actors. I mean, I, to be sure, when you're talking about humanitarian issues and development issues, non-state actors are very important. But I do think key to dealing with uh, violence is re-establishing the monopoly of violence. And I really think it's terribly dangerous 
to have not private security contractors, but not only private security contractors, a whole series of thugs and warlords, actually who we recruit as private security contractors. And those people are actually contributing to the violence. If you look at somewhere like Afghanistan, um, the legitimacy of the Karzai government, the biggest problem I think in, in Afghanistan is the lack of legitimacy of the Karzai government. And the reason for that lack of legitimacy is that it is composed of many former commanders who often have been used as private security contractors and who are very predatory, who displace people. And until you can deal with all that. So I think one has to be really careful about non-state actors. And, um, yeah, well, um, uh, Ambassador Tatsu mentioned the civilian capacity gap, which is something I actually agree with. But what I have a feeling is that we tended to think in the past about civilians as an add-on to the military. I really think we've got to think in a completely different way. And one might say maybe a positive thing about the cuts is that the role in dealing with violent situations may shift in this country to the State Department. It may be different bits of government that have to start thinking about it, and maybe that's the way to go. That in the end, I think, a human security policy does have to be civilian-led. It's much more like policing than it is like classic military. And um, even though I think you will need military skills in violent situations. I think it's terribly important that it's led by civilians who really understand um, the politics and the local culture and all of these things. So finally, you know, what I wanted to say is, after I've been terribly pessimistic, are there <laughs> any possibilities for change? Well, I think those possibilities for change will have to be political. You know, if I think about the most positive, I think much more important in marginalizing Al-Qaeda has been the Arab awakening uh, than the American um, killing of Osama bin Laden. I think the Arab awakening, and, and I think what's amazing, even though it's, it's all deteriorating now, what has been amazing has been the commitment to nonviolence among the protesters in the squares. And I think they're bringing a different kind of politics which could lead to a different kind of security thinking and a different kind. And, you know, we do know a few examples. Some examples come from far-sighted generals, but some come from mayors. I mean, the examples in Colombia of Bogota and Medellin are examples where local mayors dramatically reduced violence primarily, I mean, they did uh, make improvements to the security services, but the key to it all was political mobilization in their towns, engaging everybody in trying to marginalize violence and trying to deal with violence at very local levels. And so I think we are going to have to think in a much more political, civilian way. And, and I myself am guilty because I've very much in the past focused on how we can change the military and how we can bring the military together with civilians. And I'm much more skeptical about that than I was. Thank you. Thank you. And now, Sean McFate.
from the National Defense University. Interesting. So we'll take a moment to set up the AV here. Have our AV guru on hand too. Ah, there we go. That is okay. Good. Um, my name is uh, Dr. Sean McFate. I am a professor at the National Defense University here in Washington, D.C. That is, for those who don't know, on the waterfront. It's a military. University. Um, my students are mostly or senior civilian and military leaders, not just the United States of America, but from 88 other countries. Um, despite the fact that I'm a DOD Department of Defense uh, employee, this presentation is only my own opinions. It does not represent the DOD or the U.S. government in any sort of way or capacity. Um, and much of what I'm talking about actually is, uh, is a case study on the, the title of today's conference is, is The Practice of Human Security. Uh, I was fortunate enough, and this is based on personal experience, to try to take this nebulous concept in 2004 and in partnership with the Liberian government, recreate from scratch a military, defense sector only, a military based on the human security paradigm. And I'm gonna share this with you today. I think it's an early, if not the first, attempt to actually create a military based on human security. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a, in, a, in a bit. Before I do so, I want to ask the vital question, a question that many uh, critics of human security ask often. Uh, is human security just a new word for an old idea? Um, I will not wade into the literature on this right now. Uh, we are fortunate to have enough to have uh, Professor Caldor, who will be more than uh, adequate to, to address any concerns or, or criticisms or critiques of it. Um, but from my perch, um, how does the Department of Defense view human security? Um, and this, again, is purely my opinion. It does not reflect official um, positions whatsoever. If, if you look at all the core documents of US national security, such as uh, national security strategy, National Defense and Military Strategy, uh, the Secretary of Defense's annual reports, the Joint and Service Visions, posture statements, various advisory commissions. The term human security is wholly and conspicuously absent. It is absent. Now, whether that's a tragic oversight or deserved, I leave that for others to muse themselves over. I think in some ways it, it suffered as a similar challenge as the United Nations is that once you codify a definition, it, it becomes a very, um, there, there's sort of a, it sets off a chain reaction, if you will, and, and we want to be very careful about these seminal definitions. Um, but right now, I think it's, it's in, and also just as, in, as an anecdotal experience, when I present, I do teach uh, new war theory uh, and um, human security ideas to my students. And I think the college I'm at is probably only U.S. military war college actually discusses these ideas. Most, uh, much of U.S. war college's curriculum on strategy is mired very solidly in the 19th century um, and the 18th century, like folks like uh, Prussian theorists like Clausewitz, 
who's probably the most uh, quoted but least understood theorist in the Pentagon. Um, Jomini, uh, we look uh, very seriously. These, these are concepts of strategy that were informed by the Napoleonic Wars, World War I and World War II, um, as uh, Professor Caldor and others would say, sort of 20th century notions of security. Um, I think there is one potential, so I think in some it's fair to say that human security is not uh, within the U.S. strategic imagination right now. Um, again, my opinion. I think it's one possible exception that's been alluded to already is, is counterinsurgency operations, also called COIN. Uh, this is I'm talking about embodied in Field Manual 3-24, probably the most um, cogent might be a strong word, cogent representation of COIN theory that the U.S. has employed since post-Petraeus. Um, I think that this, we have to remember that COIN, there's, there's different types of COIN. In this town, we think of COIN as this, which is population-centric COIN based on David Golula, uh, based on uh, General Templer's famous uh, quip that winning hearts and minds but there are other types of coin out there as well. There's suppression, which is what the Soviets did in Afghanistan. There is diluting ethnic groups, whether you're Stalin and it's, you, you take Chechens out of Chechnya during World War II and spread them across 11 time zones. Or you're, uh, you're China and you infuse Western provinces of China with Han so that they, they outnumber the ethnic Uyghurs in their own home state. There's different types of coin. This is just but one population such a coin. FM324 is, for the most part, lifted straight out of Galula, who is a Tunisian-French military officer who witnessed, uh, was part of the uh, French resistance, then also as a defense attaché witnessed operations in Greece in the late uh, 1940s, also uh, Indochine or Vietnam and Algeria. He then came here and was a fellow at RAND in 61, 62, and wrote his famous uh, counterinsurgency manual, if you will, which pretty much has influenced uh, FM324, Conrad Crane, David Cullen. But there's a vital difference between um, what Galula was trying to do and what FM324 is doing, and that is Galula was trying to reestablish a colonial regime, and FM324 tries to do nation building. Very different. And they have different consequences, and we can discuss that later. Um, but here we have protection of civilians, but I, I would argue, so the one question is, is COIN human security? Many would argue yes. Well, many in the Department of Defense would argue human security is what they're doing already. Um, and they'd say, that, and they'd point to, to this. And, and, and I would say no, it's not. Petraeus did not engage in human security. COIN is an operation, it's not a strategy. And an operation is, to, is a way of achieving a further end. The end might be human security, but protecting civilians, yes, it's discussed here, and it's within the ambit of, of military operations, but it's a sort of a means to an end. It's not an end to itself, and I think when we think of human security in this room here, we're thinking of a much broader, more comprehensive vision for security, and not just as an operation. Uh, people conflate operation strategy all the time, especially in Massachusetts Avenue for strange reasons. Um, and I think uh, I would agree with Professor Caldor that we are returning to a 1975 moment where the U.S. military is sort of ending its stint in Iraq and Afghanistan, wants to abandon all things that smack of a regular war, uh, want to go back to symmetrical threats. In 1975, it was the Soviet Union 
Now we don't have a Soviet Union. Some would say we're the Asian pivot is an attempt to make China that sort of new threat. We're discussing no longer um, counterinsurgency theory. We're discussing sea, land, sea, air, sea battle. Um, we're, dis we're discussing doctrinal issues that look very 20th century against the threat that may or may not exist. Uh, I personally think this is a dangerous trend. I think we also are at risk of throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, as we did uh, in Vietnam. We sort of forgot about cords programs. We're going to forget about PRTs. Uh, I think we're at, we're at a precipice in some ways. But I do want to focus on one thing today, and uh, in the time I have remaining is, is looking at this case study of where human security was applied or attempted, shall I say, and that's Liberia. Um, as the ambassador was also mentioning. In Liberia, uh, I'll just, it's obviously it's West Africa. It's in a very uh, dangerous geopolitical neighborhood bounded by Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, and uh, Guinea, still to this day uh, very volatile. Liberia was once the jewel of West Africa. Uh, there, it was not just uh, amongst its, its state peers there seen as a wonderful place to live, but also there were three flights a, day, a week from JFK to Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, by Pam Am. Um, this all changed in 1980. Uh, there was a coup d'etat by Samuel Doe, uh, initially with a great deal of popular support, but it quickly descended into chaos. In 1989, Charles Taylor led a coup d'etat, followed by 14 years of egregious civil war. Even by African standards, this war had, was predominant with human rights violations by all actors, um, uh, almost a venality, uh, child soldiers, blood diamonds, Victor Bout made a small fortune here, the, the small arms smuggler. Um, things such as short sleeve, long sleeve, where combatants would capture civilians or non-combatants would ask if you want a short sleeve or long sleeve shirt. If you said uh, long sleeve, they'd take a machete and whack off your arm about the, at the wrist. If you said short sleeve, they'd whack it off at just above the elbow. They would capture pregnant women. They would take bets on the gender of her child, and then they would find out. It was, by the time I arrived in um, early 2004, it was post-apocalyptic. Taylor had gone into exile into Nigeria Almost everybody at that time thought that Liberia would surely backslide into violence by 2004 or 2005 at latest. If you would suggest it to people in Liberia and international community members that Liberia would be a relatively, relatively strong state in 2012, nobody would have believed you. It became home to, at the time, one of the largest, this is a this sort of sums up the damage in 2004 after 14 years of civil war from USAID's OTI office. Um, UNMIL, United Mission, UN Mission in Liberia, became the largest peacekeeping organization uh, in its time, about short of 17,000 blue helmets at its peak. Um, and to this day, it's not that big. It's about half that size or less. Uh, it still remains uh, very much under UN with UN presence. So here again is a summary of, of Liberia. Uh, after 14 years of war, widespread human rights violations by any metric. Another way to think about this are Liberian war orphans. I think a much better metric for me at least. Um, 
So in a country as ravished by war as Liberia was, it seemed that a critical key to stability lay in a single and basic question, which was this. How exactly can you transform the security sector, police and military, from being symbols of terror into instruments of democracy? Especially when you have a traumatized population, not just in Liberia, but the whole neighborhood. Charles Taylor's uh, influence uh, extended well into Sierra Leone and Cote d'Ivoire. Another way of asking this question is this. How can you make a policeman or a soldier, somebody that a child will not run away from in fear, but run to for protection? This is the, this is the ultimate challenge for security sector reform, and I would say human security writ large when dealing with the security sector. The approach that I took and my colleagues took was human security. Back in 2004, very much untested concept, still nebulous, uh, even still today very nebulous. Um, but we thought that the human security approach was merited, and I'll explain why shortly. We tried to create a program that translated human security from a theory and into a practice. We didn't have any models that I know of at that time. We had, um, Uganda had a white paper in the defense, Ministry of Defense that talked about human security, but it wasn't fully realized, and I'm not portraying Liberia as having fully realized it either. This is more of an attempt than here's what we did, isn't it great? Um, curiously, this was not conducted by the US government, not directly. It was conducted by private security contractors. It was conducted by a company called Dyncor International. And I would like to highlight, uh, to give some balance, that um, this is something that contractors can do very well. As a contractor, I was a contractor at the time for Dyncor International. I was not constrained by Department of Defense dogma, interests, received wisdom, bureaucratic issues, turf wars. The contractor was not beholden to those interests. It could step aside and do new thought experiments like human security. The reason DynCorp could also do this is because it's the contract D, if you will, I don't know, the, 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 the organization that was letting out the contract was not the Department of Defense, it was the Department of State. And the Department of State was much more open to the idea of human security than DOD for reasons that uh, Professor Calder has just mentioned. Um, now, that was wonderful. Of course, contracting, and I'll, I'll defer to my, my colleague Doug Brooks in the back, and also has, uh, it releases a lot more complexities into already complex situation. So uh, there, are, there are challenges of contracting these things as well. But to my knowledge, it's the first time in about 150 years that one sovereign relied on a private company to raise another sovereign's armed forces in toto. So DynCorp's mission was to demobilize safely the standing army of Liberia, which had not been done very well in Africa in the decades previously, and then raise a new army, a new military, and a ministry of defense from scratch. And the term from scratch is actually in the contract. Um, to give you some scope of, of what we were doing. Um, so again, this is interesting. Um, it has pros and cons to contracting, which I'm happy to discuss 
in, in Q&A. So what was human security, at least in our minds? Uh, let's start by what it's not, and I might be going over some old ground. Let's talk about the, sort of the, the orthodox, the conventional national security paradigm. This is how the Pentagon views the world. This is how uh, uh, militaries around the world view the world. This is their lens. It's sort of a Westphalian notion. It's about securing territory, protecting states, and you do that through a strong military. And conflicts are interstate, and they're waged um, using proxies called militaries. Uh, as Clausewitz says, it's sort of like a, it's like a drunken beer brawl, uh, and each state has its military. Um, this is hard power focused. This is what is taught in war colleges. This is what is predominantly the doctrine. And it's curious that only the, I think the US Army is the only other institution that uses doctrine as well as the Catholic Church. Um, not sure what that says. Um, belief, faith, who knows? Um, but as you'll see, that it, the center of security is the state. It's the state. And once the state is secured, security then cascades down to the regime, and to security, and then finally, de derivatively, to the individual. So you begin by securing the state. And this is what Clausewitz, again, who's sort of seen as the paragon of this theory, calls centers of gravity. It's, it's capitals. It's, uh, it's, it's militaries. It's alliances with other states. Um, that is the traditional model of security. It's national security as we perceive it. Human security, at least how we perceived in 2004, was this. The opposite. You focus on securing the individual first. And once the individual feels secure, that security cascades to the community. And then from there to the regime, and then finally to the state. This is particularly useful, and we'll talk about why we thought this approach was best for Liberia. And we were working with Liberia, the Liberian government, as partners, not as we're here to tell you what you need. Um, but this is individual-centric. It is. Um, Threats are broader than just simply other states. Um, we did not think that Liberia, well, we'll get into it in a second, um, but also that it recognizes non-state armed actors. It recognizes other threats as well that do not come at the, the tip of a armored cavalry regiment. Um, there are more ways to threaten human community and human polity than simply artillery. So the big question is, why did we think that this approach was better than, than the conventional one? And remember, in 2004, this is way before Petraeus, way before Coyne, this was a very hard sell here in the city, even among State Department. It was a very hard sell. Um, it, 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 the reason the answer was because the threat analysis. Threat analysis drives security sector reform. Before you realize what kind of military you want, you have to first understand the nature of the threat that you wanted to deal with. After consulting local stakeholders and international experts for nearly a year, from 2004 to 2005, it quickly became clear that Liberia's biggest threats did not stem from its neighbors. It did not stem from Sierra Leone blitzkrieging across the Liberian border to seize Monrovia with a strong military. That was not the primary threat. That would be the primary threat if it was you know, 1914 and you lived in Alsace Lorraine, France. Um, the biggest threats came not from its neighbors, but from the failures of development. And this is sort of, Coin sort of picks up on this, but I think Coin is a latecomer, and Coin has problems with its scope. 
But basically, um, public grievances like lack of social justice, uh, inequality, exclusion from politics, these fomented grievances that armed groups can exploit. And uh, so it became quick, quickly clear that if you wanted to secure Liberia, it's not about closing off the borders from neighboring hostile states. It's about addressing grievances. It's addressing grievances so the state can address them rather than having armed groups address them. It's what Mao calls armed politics. So we wanted to create security by addressing public grievances through development rather than through kinetic force, per se, and thereby denying the enemy its ability to gain public support and sanctuary. <clears throat> if you read your Mao, he's all about talk and Ortiz Lawrence, it's all about using popular support as your logistical, what we'd say tail, your logistical support. Um, if you deny the insurgents or the disaffected or whatever code word you choose to insert there, that is how you achieve security in a place like Liberia where threats stem not from powerful militaries, they stem from the failures of development. So we took a human security approach. And in, in a word, uh, in a phrase, to us, this is what human security approach meant in a military, where security and development are linked and mutually reinforcing. So the question is, is how do you raise and raise a military? And I don't have time for that right now. Um, but some highlights from that re regard human security, uh, our human security approach, it was not flawless. It had lots of problems. But this is sort of trying to extract what we went into and what we came out with, is first of all, recognize that uh, DDR, which is demobilization, uh, disarmament, demobilization, reintegration, and security sector reform, are integrated uh, and extremely political. You're in a fragile or failed state, often the institutions that control violence have the de facto political authority. So anytime you want to rewire or impact them, that becomes political and dangerous. And purely technical approaches alone will fail. Second is that you have to sensitize the population to what's going on. And this does not simply mean stakeholder engagement. It also means having uh, a public affairs uh, campaign that is owned and run by the host nation. And we, in Liberia, we used radio shows. We had uh, comic books. We had all sorts of things that we tried to do. And it, it wasn't Dyncourt. Dyncourt subbed a company to do this. It was Liberian. And they you know, sort of gave technical uh, help. Um, also to be inclusive of planning, but you can't be so inclusive that you, you allow spoilers to enter the talks because once spoilers are there, it's really hard to remove them. And there will be spoilers. So you can't simply say, oh, more is better all the time when you're talking about development and security. Uh, you have to make sure, I mean, and how you do that is, is it's political. It's political. Uh, probably should be done by the host nation, right? Um, Demobilized with dignity, we did not treat the, the, arm, the, the standing armed forces that had been involved to a large extent in human rights violations. We did not treat them, treat them as criminals. We treated them as soldiers who were being decommissioned. And this created problems within the local population, um, but we also felt that if we didn't do that, then we didn't want them to uh, take recourse to violence. 
human rights vetting. This was critical. Amazing, we would never think of putting a police officer on the streets of Washington DC with a background check, but we do that every day in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then we're surprised that there's green on blue violence, it's amazing. Um, we created, now human rights vetting is very difficult in a failed or fragile state, and Liberia was a failed state because there's no public records. But we developed a system of public vetting, of seeing what records were available, to, uh, and working with local partners to do human rights vetting, and that was expensive, but it was much more expensive than allowing a, a few proverbial bad apples into the ranks who do then violence against their own people. We created a force structure that was not very large, but it was constrained not by the people, how many people we need to secure the borders, because this is not a Westphalian security threat. We did it by the ability of the government to pay salaries on time. More militaries in Africa or elsewhere, it seems to me, have uh, created problems because of, of unpaid salaries rather than other political grievances. Um, we also were inclusive of all groups, inclusive of women. Uh, one funny story is that we, the Liberians actually came to DynCorp and said, we want to have, you know, it should be open to women, any unit, infantry, whatever. We can, why can't women uh, serve? They were great warlords as well. Um, uh, and, and we actually got pushback from the State Department and from the Department of Defense. Like, we can't have women in infantry units. The U.S. military doesn't have women in infantry units. And so Liberia pushed back and said, nope, it's our military and we want women. And to this day, you could argue that the armed forces of Liberia are more inclusive of women than the U.S. Army. We, similarly to that, we eschewed U.S. doctrinal templates and, uh, and doctrine. Um, this is not, the, the, the security needs and the operations of Liberia are not the same as the United States. Why would we cut and paste FM, you know, field manual, whatever, onto a Liberian uh, military? Uh, that's, that's sort of, in my opinion, the de facto mode, or the, the, the default mode of most U.S. military security force assistance. Um, we also, uh, we created a force structure that was keen on securing development. Uh, this meant things such as no special operations units, no heavy artillery, no heavy weapons. Um, why would you need that to secure development? And, and also you don't want to threaten neighbors with a lot of force projection ability. We, we wanted a, this is we, I'm saying Liberian government and the U.S. Uh, wanted an all-volunteer force with transparency and promotion systems and, and accounting, having an ombudsman to deal with uh, ethnic issues, and lastly, to be humble. Uh, humility goes a long way. Um, this is me in front of a recruiting poster trying to, uh, you know, we tried to do all sorts of, um, anyway. So sort of to, to end, uh, we had uh, the day that uh, the president of Liberia uh, at the time, Judy Bryant, before uh, President Johnson's relief, uh, Shalif Johnson took over, they announced the demobilization of the standing army. We thought there'd be riots in the street and it would be horrible. And at, the, at this big signing ceremony at the, at the mansion, um, the, the, old, the old army band was there and the, all the dignitaries were there. And of course, there was no electricity in the, in the presidential manor, mansion at that point still. Bullet holes are everywhere, bullet holes in the tuba. And as they were playing the, the, the national anthem as the whole entourage of UN and, and ambassadors left, and it was just us left there, on the sort of the driveway of this mansion, uh, the old band broke out in case sarah sarah. Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to uh, to to our Q and A. Thank you.
And um, and I think from a civil society perspective, um, what we see is that we find ourselves between the rhetoric and the practice. And so when we talk about human security, in, in the course of our work, what we see is, is a very conscious attempt to accept and embrace the principles of human security. We haven't sat in a forum in a space where someone has disagreed on the principles of human security. Um, I haven't seen anyone disagree with the need to engage in preventing uh, preventable harms, um, people-centered approaches, very much uh, what Sean has presented, the more the national uh, paradigm and the human security paradigm. There hasn't been a space we have sat where that hasn't been endorsed and accepted. What we see as civil society, however, is when the time comes where the human security principles are to be operationalized and put in practice, when um, aspects perceived to be attacked by al-Shabaab have to be engaged by the Kenyan government, when there is uh, the Tuaregs in Mali and a decision has to be taken, when there is uh, LRA invasions in northern Uganda, and that is where our civil society, we come to start, we get caught up between the rhetoric of embracing human security and operationalizing the principles of what human security is all about. And so we feel that as, human, as civil society, we have a contribution to make in terms of, first of all, um, interrogating or positioning ourselves to be able to hold accountable or to at least be able to advance the norms and the principles of human security, both in practice and to be able to hold accountable um, policies and structures that indeed undermine the ability to operationalize the principles of human security. Um, on one hand, we have been grappling with two scenarios. There are states that lack the capacity to be able to provide or guarantee the human security of its citizens. And this can be, without getting into definitions, as questions of failed states, question of weak states, fragile states. But there's also those states that just do not exist. Spaces where civilians have to guarantee their own security. And these are the areas where civil society, particularly local civil society, that we work with, that we that are part of our network, for example, grapple with every day. And now the question in this situation is that as civil society, how can we best build a critical mass of, um, of human security champions, if I would call it that? Individuals, organizations that could be able to embrace the principles of human security and be able to advance the norms, the agreed um, uh, values of human security, and particularly at the time when it's critical. And a very good example is in February this year, the European uh, Peace Building Liaison Office convened a meeting with the European External Action Service in Brussels to basically discuss the Boko Haram issue in Nigeria, and particularly how it's being framed and how the framing is affecting 
the engagement of this particular issue in Northern Nigeria and how that is affecting the human security of Nigerians, not just in Northern Nigeria, but in Nigeria as a whole. What was very interesting engaging with the EU officials during that particular meeting is that the way some of these security threats are framed very much shape the way these issues are addressed in actual sense. Without necessarily disagreeing that human security is a useful framework, the engagement of these particular issues very much contradicts the very primary core aspects of human security. And this, it's within this dilemma and this contradiction that civil society organizations then feel the need to take upon a more stronger responsibility to be able to first of all advance the principle itself, but to also be able to interrogate how uh, sort of traditional security approaches still play a very central role whenever certain threats to human security occur in respective countries. We have just had a very interesting multi-stakeholder dialogue in Benin in Cotonou around the Mali issue, but at the same time um, building up on the Boko Haram issue and the alleged terrorist attacks in West Africa. And what was very interesting is to see how the African Union, the ECOWAS, the United Nations, and other key state actors, including the military, first of all, perceive these particular threats within the region. But our responsibility as civil society was to sort of create a new narrative, and a narrative based upon the principles of human security, that you can engage with issues around in Mali, in northern Nigeria, from a human security perspective, on the basis how you frame these particular issues, on how to be able to create an opportunity for dialogue without stifling the possibility, without stifling the possibility for dialogue, while avoiding the resolve for another military or sort of like a counterinsurgency approach in that case. And so what, what we are trying to do then as civil society organizations uh, within, for example, the GPAC network is to be able to engage with the key stakeholders who are shaping and informing the security sector and to be able to inject a new dialogue, to be able to provide a new um, narrative in the process. And particularly when it comes to um, security processes that are shaping conflict and post-conflict contexts. And if you look at the early recovery strategies, for example, recommended for post-conflict contexts, be it in Ivory Coast, in Sudan and in South Sudan, uh, recommendations we've just had about Liberia, but even recommendations for Liberia, for Sierra Leone, for the DRC, how can we as civil society be able to interrogate DDR processes to ensure that the implementation of DDR as a post-conflict recovery exercise embraces the principles of human security, that it's just much more than collecting an arm, but also addressing the, the fundamental core aspects or the root causes of why people arm themselves. And the realization that a lot of the resources and the finances invested in DDR and SSR as an early recovery strategy actually does not address the human security issue of most of the civilians in these particular areas. So as civil society, we feel that this, we have that responsibility, given our embeddedness at local level, to be able to provide these experiences, to be able to provide these narratives that can then shape uh, sort of the more global 
regional and nationwide thinking. And at the same time, acknowledging the multiplicity as well as the interconnectedness of threats um, that we see across the globe, there's also the appreciation that, and, 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 and the ambassador spoke about that this morning, that the state alone lacks the capacity to be able to guarantee the human security of its citizens. And so as civil society, we are coming in not necessarily with the solutions, but we are coming in to provide sort of a complementary, to play a complementary role, and more specifically to be able to create a space where there can be broader dialogue on human security issues. For example, the role of regional intergovernmental bodies, the Organization of American States, ASEAN, ASAC, the African Union, ECOWAS, East African Community. What role do these particular actors play in guaranteeing human security of citizens, particularly within regional blocks, that if the discussion or the engagement of the Al-Shabaab issue is much more sensitive in Nairobi, can this discussion be brought to Addis Ababa within the auspices of EGAT, for example, within auspices of the African Union? Could we have the discussion of Boko Haram and, and the Northern Mali issue in Benin where the current president of the African Union is the president of Benin, as compared to having such a sensitive issue in Nigeria, for example. So the role of other stakeholders in engaging with national threats, or even localized threats, but from a more multinational and multi-level perspective. And the, and the civil society are finding ways and devising strategies of how to provide a platform where these discussions can take place bringing different stakeholders at the table with the name of building a critical mass to sort of reduce the gap between the rhetoric of human security and the practice of it all. But at the same time, be able to, to generate experiences and knowledge on how and why human security is important. And just the way Sean has made a very good illustration of how this can, could be and has been operationalized to a large extent in Liberia. These are the examples of the case studies that we feel would then be useful in advancing the usefulness of human security because in general, there's an acceptance. In practice, when, 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 when the tough decision has to be met, the easier option of traditional hardcore security military engagement rules the day. And so you get a feeling that there's still this, um, this, there's still this dissatisfaction with what human security means in practice. And we feel as civil society that we have that responsibility to be able to demonstrate that a people-centered approach is probably a much better strategy of guaranteeing human security by bringing the individual at the core then that leads more to a communal regime safety and more state safety as shown uh, presented today. But also as we do so, there's also the realization that for us as GPAC, for example, we have a mandate that is geared towards preventing um, violent conflicts. Appreciating that conflict as a core element of human existence does not necessarily mean that violence is then an acceptable outcome of a conflict situation. Then in that particular case, the dilemma then is how do you complement state processes in situation where the state 
holds the monopoly of violence against its own citizens. And thus, that is an element of human security that I know that many of our colleagues and friends grapple with in a situation where you're supposed to be complementing the state, but the state is actually monopolizing the power of violence and utilizing this monopoly against its own citizens. And those are areas which we feel require more dialogue, and it's good to be able to be in a room where you share common spaces with, with security agents, with the private sector, with state actors, with civil society, with the United Nations, for example, because in that way you're hoping that you can have um, not only a critical mass of champions within the key stakeholders, but you can also be able to bridge the citizen or the civilian gap that the ambassador spoke about earlier today. And um, in summing up sort of what, what we have been trying to, to do as a global network is to, f to, to, to try and identify um, policy spaces where we can be able to lobby and advocate for reforms or review of certain policy instruments that we perceive to be able to, 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 in the implementation, have sort of unintended negative externalities. And some of them, how they are designed and conceptualized, they have far-reaching negative effects in the implementation in most of the post and in conflict and post-conflict countries. And how to be able to identify spaces for lobby and to be able to identify spaces for political dialogue around this, this uh, traditional security policies. And when you start looking at um, policies towards counterterrorism or terrorism, when you start looking at early recovery and early conflict recovery strategies, the traditional security sector reform, uh, strategies geared towards DDR, um, if you look at recommendations for um, the prevention of genocide, mass atrocities, of course, which is a totally different discussion within R2P, there are certain elements in the implementation that in many ways contradicts the very core principles of human security. And so as civil society, we have that, we feel that we have that mandate and that responsibility to be able to also input into the implementation of these practices. We've got an opportunity to be able to engage with policymakers on how some of these processes are implemented. Of course, the biggest question in that case is that how do you access those decision-making spaces, for example, as a civil society? And platforms like this and many others then provide that opportunity where this form of dialogue can start, where this form of narrative can be generated. And the meeting that we had um, one, one and a half weeks ago in Benin was a demonstration of how you can initiate this national dialogue or this regional dialogue on a very sensitive issue with an, with an aim of generating a new narrative on how to be able to engage on perceived uh, threats to, um, to human security and looking at it from a more multidimensional perspective, irrespective of how human security is defined. And so I come back to my very first point where I say that as, as, as civil society, we are left with the responsibility of sort of navigating our path through the rhetoric of human security and the practice of it. And we have seen that one of the biggest role that we have to play is to support 
processes geared towards advancing the concept itself. It reminds me of several years ago when the discussion of preventive action and wanting to advance the norm of preventive action and justifying why preventing violent conflicts was much better or easier than dealing with a crisis. And on human security, the discussion is even much harder because no one disagrees with the principles that we have. It's just that when a decision is made, when you're forced and found in a situation where the question is, do you then dialogue and initiate nonviolent strategies of engaging with al-Shabaab, or do you send the Kenya Defense Force into Somalia? And the latter tends to prevail. And for us in our civil society, the question is why? Are we engaging enough with the state officials? Do the state officials know of any other option? Because again, it's us questioning our own assumptions as well as engaging in a very pro, uh, positive way to support the thinking within the policymakers. And then creating the spaces within this positive political dialogue can get place, can take place with, um, with positive and realistic um, solutions and thinking, we can then be able to start demonstrating that when you take a military approach to, to Al-Shabaab defined from a terrorist perspective, you then create an opportunity where there is no room for dialogue because you've already framed your counterpart. But at the same time, you guarantee insecurity in your own borders as the same way you guarantee insecurity for the Somali citizen, for example. But the question is that do we have the spaces to be able to engage in this dialogue? Because it's in the process of bringing the people at the center and at the fore of our discussion that then we can be able to start talking about integrating and embracing the true values of human security. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, we're not only caught with the role of generating a critical mass within civil society, but also creating champions or leadership within other stakeholders, be it in the military, be it in the UN, be it within government actors who can then also be champions of the principle, but at the same time to be able to generate practices and experiences that can indeed demonstrate, as Sean did, that with a human security approach you can bring forth positive change. But then this, have to be, this has to be done in such a way that it influences and changes the narrative, not just within the civil society, but at the same time within policymakers and the, and, and, and the broader stakeholder community within the security architecture as it were. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. We're going to take some time now, five minutes, for you just to speak with the people beside you, um, asking critical questions. What was the common ground in the four presentations that you heard? Um, is this whole of society approach that William was just talking about, multi-stakeholder approach to, uh, to human security possible? Um, does context matter? Um, so we just want to sort of raise the level of the discussion that we'll have together by having you talk individually just amongst yourselves, the people sitting beside you, for five minutes. Shall I get you some <laughs> I don't know. It's been a long time ago. Maybe one of my, yeah. Yeah, it's probably one of my, my 
the yeah. team members, yeah. But what I want to know is yeah, yeah. why, if that job is doing development, why do you call them? That's a good question. Actually, there was a huge debate in 2003, 2004, does Liberia need a military, right? And so you had the UN, the SRSG saying, the Costa Rica model is like a strong gendarmerie or something like that, police force, something like you could call for in the awards, right? In the awards. Uh, but it was decided by powers that I was not there in the room that they need one military. They said strong gendarmerie, a weak military, there's a difference, of course there's a lot of difference. Um, but that decision was taken before I got there. And uh, you could, you know, the question is, can you, they would say, well, it's not, West Africa is not where Costa Rica is. It's a different situation. Well, Shannon's idea, which yeah. we put in the book, was that African militaries should be turned into engagement units, which is more or less what we're saying. Right. I also think there needs to be a contribution to global human security policies. Yes. Right, so right. That would be, you know, my feeling was that you'd have a sort of my argument was, and then I like Shannon's argument, what we were talking about are engagement brigades, but I thought we should have a sort of domestic peace and an international peace Right. Right. Well, that, that's good. That was our initial uh, conception, but what happened, of course, as it got bigger and, and people here in this town saw it as success, they gave us, quote, help. And help is, you know, another four-letter word, right? So we got, like, we have like army colonels showing up saying no, it needs to be like Fort Benning or Bragg, and it got diluted. The vision got diluted because these retired, and also in Bangladesh too, they had these retired general officers who, you know, who were trying to make it into something that they were familiar with rather than what is even Liberia didn't want that. I, I tried to do this, and it actually got me into the EU constitution. I said that we should have for the whole world yeah. is a humanitarian That's what our original vision was, but uh, maybe it's a generational thing. Uh, I totally agree with you that we're still locked in a 20th century paradigm of what security and what protection is. It's in the EU context, which is a quite different 
story from today and then this after and then afterwards I talk about the experience of the missions. Alright, let's come back. If I can draw you back together. And we have microphones. Uh, Kyle here has a microphone. Who would like to ask a question? Yes. Yes, sir. There's a microphone coming towards you. Questions, comments, thoughts? Thank you very much. My name is uh, Nia Kwete. I work with a group of uh, NGOs here in Washington called ADNA. Um, um, conflict and human security is so important to us that we actually have a working group on that. Um, I have a, my question has to do with Africa. Um, my background is Africa, West Africa. Mm -hmm. and, and so the African question is, and, and I was wondering if uh, Professor Calder and Professor Mafait can, can address that. Um, one of the people, experts, that has, have spoken to African is uh, Paul Collier at Oxford, who used to work here. And his book on conflict in Africa is about guns and, and uh, votes, and I'm not quite getting the title right. But my question is, have you read the book? And do you agree or, <laughs> do you agree or disagree with him, more or less? Because he talks about the same things. How do you deal with conflict in failed states, particularly African states? And the other part of the Af uh, African question for uh, Dr. Zuma, I'm wondering if AFRICOM attended that Benin meeting that you just had, and if they did, what did the Africans think of their approach, especially African society? What is their view of how AFRICOM has been operating? Okay, thank, thank you, you for those questions. We'll take three questions and then have a couple comments. So there's one way here. Thank you very much. My name is Simon Lompré, and I'm an intern at the Stimson Center. And my question would be for Professor Caldor. Um, you mentioned that we had an approach um, that was a bit too militaristic in, uh, in its nature. And I was wondering if you could explain um, how we could use civilians or non-military uh, means to protect civilians or to um, engage with local communities um, because I have the impression that it's not very well understood. There's a, a lack of knowledge about what should be the role of civilians in conflicts. And, um, or, or you can take, for instance, uh, Resolution 2043 uh, about Unsmith. There, there's a reference to a civilian component, component, but we don't really know what they will be doing and how many they will be. So, m so my question is, how do we um, use civilians, like in practice, if I can make a parallel with the title of this seminar, Human Security in Practice, then Civilians in Practice. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And then Doug Brooks. Hi, Doug Brooks with ISOI International Stability Operations Association. We represent the companies that work in these areas. 
Uh, I guess two questions. One uh, for Sean, which was um, one of the huge issues on the on Liberia was getting money in the first place to put into the military, and uh, it was a massive debate. And you were probably—I don't remember if you were part of that before the actual uh, money was allocated for this. I know uh, Charlie Snyder was very much involved in pushing this concept. I wonder if you can just comment on that and, and what it took to essentially push this idea that there can be a military that, that can do the right thing. Uh, and then for, for Mary, uh, on, the, on the private security issue, um, I, I think to a sense you're right, the monopoly of violence, you know, you kind of have to limit who has the weapons and so on. But I, I think you see sort of a two-track uh, private security issue in most countries where you have uh, essentially the international companies which follow all the rules and regulations and vetting and so on. And then the local companies, which often, especially in the case of Afghanistan, sort of ignore the rules, ignore the, the larger government, and create that sort of warlord issue that you, you, that you, have the, you legitimately have an issue with. Um, I wonder if there's some, some idea on how you can sort that out. I, I, obviously, in Afghanistan and other places, you need the private security or nothing else is going to happen. Um, so I would just say, you know, uh, ask how you'd get around that. Okay. Who on the panel would like to respond to any part of those three questions? I think I want to respond to all three. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have read Paul Collier's book, and I liked it, and I think I agree with it. Um, one little point I thought it was uh, worth mentioning is that when we talk about violence in many places, we use the term conflict. But actually, I wonder whether it isn't a misleading term, because we tend to think of conflict I actually think violence closes down conflict, that democratic societies are peaceful ways for managing conflict, and that actually once you're in a violent situation, um, maybe you use the idea of a conflict to legitimize what you're doing, but in fact it's quite misleading and it leads to all kinds of problems, of which one of which and, uh, is that you do see dialogue as an alternative to um, getting engaged in military defeat. And I feel there's something in between. I mean, we don't, in a normal society, dialogue with criminals. But that doesn't mean that we go out and kill them. And I think that there's this something in between which we're not getting. I mean, and that's, the something in between is something that's quite difficult to think about, but is absolutely crucial we're going to deal with violence in a lot of places of the world. So, and that relates to the second question. You were asking, who are the civilians? Well, the civilians are police. They're judges. They're legal experts. They're humanitarian aid givers. They're a whole range of people. And I would hope that we would sort of see in the future human security forces in which we don't make this sharp distinction between the military and the civilians, but there are people in those human security forces who have military skills because they will uh, face very violent situations. But in those very violent situations, their job will not be to hunt out and kill the people who are causing violence, though they might try to arrest them. But their basic job would be to create areas where people can exist peacefully to stabilize violence, to reduce violence, to create areas where people can talk. Very often, wars are caused by people being afraid. They turn to strong men. If you, the key role is to reduce fear. 
And then finally, Doug's question. I mean, I'm very aware of the fact that today we have a very serious security gap that, uh, you know, people do feel very insecure and their governments don't provide that security, whether it's people living in rich neighborhoods here or whether it's people turning to ethnic warlords. And so this gap is being filled by private security contractors. And in some cases, that's better than not being filled. In some cases, it's worse. Um, I actually think there's a huge problem when security becomes something, becomes a market. That's what I feel. I think there's a fundamental problem when security becomes a market. I don't want to detract from what I know there are groups that are doing very valuable humanitarian jobs. But nevertheless, even among the NGOs, I get really nervous about the way they're competing for funds and the competitive atmosphere. Even though they don't make profits, they're desperate, they're in a market situation. And that means instead of thinking about the public interest, about the security concerns, they're thinking about where the next funding is coming from. And I think that's, so I sort of feel there's a fundamental issue about security being an issue of public provision. Thank you. Others want to comment, respond? I'll be very quick because we're running out of time. Um, I'll answer all three. What the, addressing AFRICOM. Uh, initially, AFRICOM was, was uh, conceived in 2005, 2006 as actually being a new type of unified command that had sort of human security-like elements, and then it quickly went downhill. <laughs> so, um, it, uh, the, it was supposed to, it was a, it was a, it was a command that was, was uh, the deputy commander was a civilian. It wasn't a, a general officer. It would be an ambassador. They would have a development and a State Department uh, personnel at, at, at levels of decision-making, not just liaison, was supposed to be this new approach to security. And then uh, a couple things happened. One, it was, it, its rollout was, was not very good. Uh, it, it ended up sort of uh, threatening countries by accident rather than saying, you know, what we're doing here. Uh, and also, its focus quickly shifted to counterterrorism in the Sahel. Uh, rhetoric comes out that basically Boko Haram, Northern Mali, they're all, they're all about Al-Qaeda, which I think is a really um, uh, problematic statement. And it seems like the lens through which they view Africa is now basically counterterrorism. That may not be their choice, uh, but that's certainly um, it's part of it. And, and uh, I, I don't know what its future will be. Um, in terms of modern conflict, uh, the second question of civilians, I mean, I think modern conflict, and Professor Calder, you've gotten this in your writings, is, is really blurring or re-blurring the lines between civilians and combatants writ large. So I think this civilian military is a dichotomy that may not prove that useful in this century going forward. And what we need might be look radically different than what we had in the past in terms of security forces, even the word force. Um, and in terms of Doug's question about getting money for Liberia, that was tough. Because especially when it came to demobilizing the, the armed forces, like nobody wants to give money to what they thought were thugs. And they're like, well, we have thugs of our own we'll give money to. Or we'll give money to you know, children who are victims of the thugs. Uh, and also people in Liberia didn't like, I mean, people who do DDR know this. That it's, it's a problem where the, those that perpetuated the violence seem to be getting a lot of the rewards after the conflict is done. And this is not 
unique to Liberia. It's, this is a common, and I don't know who's got the solution. In terms of did Liberia need a military, this is a question uh, Mary and I were discussing uh, when you were all discussing things. Um, this, was, this, remain, this was a big question in the early days of Liberia before I got there. And I don't know who sorted it out and when, but I know that the UN uh, chief of mission, uh, Jean-Paul Klein, uh, he did not want to see an army in Liberia. A lot of the people of Liberia did not want to see a military. They associated it with Charles Taylor's war crimes for good reason. Um, and, and Taylor, I mean, uh, and, and Klein, uh, was, had, he, he quipped that African armies are good at like playing cards and plotting coups. Um, so it was thought like we could sort of make a Costa Rican gendarmerie, but for reasons that were not, I was not in the room, decision was taken to actually create a military, but it would be more of a, a light military with, with low force projection. Um, and again, I'm not holding up Liberia as a success story. I'm just saying this was what it is. You could, the jury's very much out. And uh, just to respond to the question about Benin, no, AFRICOM wasn't at the meeting. Um, and I very much agree with what Mary just said that um, I think the difficulty that we face at times is that in framing some of the threats that are perceived as threats to human security, what we do is that we obscure or limit the potentials for a non-violent way of resolving them. And that, that touches on so, so many things. The moment you, whatever frame you use, be, when, when you give me an, an illegal identity, then that illegal identity becomes my space within which I leverage my own authority. And then it creates a situation where we just do not have an opportunity to be able to dialogue. So the, 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 the basis upon which violence becomes a last resort, in actual sense, becomes a first resort. Uh, but what is also very interesting is that when you look at conflict and the way it's presented at times, it's almost presented as if conflict in itself is a bad thing. In actual sense, it's, it's a space within which reform can be guaranteed. I think what is unacceptable is when conflict transforms into violence. And the question then is how do we then start framing violence and separating violence from conflict? And I think one of the things that we try to do in the Benin meeting, taking advantage of uh, the Benin president being the current president of the African Union was to be able to provide an opportunity where a new narrative can be shaped around the, um, around the aspects that are perceived as terrorist aspects in, in the sub-region in West Africa and the linkages with uh, Al-Qaeda Maghreb and the linkages with uh, uh, the crossing of Al-Qaeda to Boko Haram and every form of criminal act being perceived as being an act of Boko Haram. But how do we start framing these issues in such a way that they can be engaged from a more constructive point of view as compared to being perceived as issues that require another military uh, intervention? Okay. Thank you all so much for your contributions this morning. All four of you did a fantastic job. Thank you all for being here and engaging in the discussion. Thank you to Search for Common Ground. Oh, please, yes. I think we talked about only Africa, but I think uh, we should uh, broaden the horizon. You know, uh, in other words, uh, Africa uh, is unique in a sense that African Union adopted the concept of human security already in 2003. So we talked about 2004 and other things. It's extremely important. In other words, uh, whatever conflict in Africa, mm -hmm. there is no objection in terms of human security, I mean, you know, security council to get involved. 
because the, even you know, conflict there, yeah. violence there, is a threat to international peace and security. But in other regions, it's more sensitive, although violence takes place, yeah. particularly in Asia, like, for instance, Sri Lanka and others. Yeah. Very difficult. In Latin America, for instance. You know? In other words, violence is not only from conflict. Right. I'm very much concerned about your neighbor in Central uh, American countries. Okay. That uh, this is also related to this uh, private you know, protection and other things. Okay. In other words, they are really kind of called citizen's violence, citizen security. People are threatened, right? Huh? And then police and national security cannot protect those people. So therefore, rich people can hire to protect their own, but not other people. It's really breakdown. And I think it's important to think about human security. Basis, of course, starting point of physical security, first of all, and then going beyond all these things. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. The next CPRF will be on June 12th, and it will be on Pakistani peacebuilding approaches that are culturally sensitive. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, I thought I had asked you first if you wanted to, no, no. but I didn't know. No, no, the question was on. Okay. So. <laughs> ah, thank you. Thanks a lot.